I love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas. Uh, I'm one of those. I know it's fashionable these days to be cynical and sort of complain. Oh, the shops are playing Christmas carols too early. I don't be with them playing them all the time. I, I love it. I love Christmas. I love everything about it. But my Christmas has started a little bit poorly today. Uh, we opened our first present earlier this afternoon, which was a slip and slide. People know what a slip and slide is. You know the thing in the backyard with the water and all that sort of stuff. But uh, because my children are a little bit older now, they read the instructions, whereas I was just hoping to put it out and play with it. And uh, needless to say, I exceeded the weight limit <laughs> by, by 45 kilograms, and uh, I was not allowed on the slip and slide. So I'm all sunburnt from standing out setting up the slip and slide, and I didn't get to have a go on the slip and slide. So then I went to the earlier Christmas Eve family service around the school, and they tipped a bucket of balls on my head. So Christmas can only go up from here, is sort of my thought. Uh, But as I said, I love everything about Christmas, and as a kid, uh, I used to love the Christmas pageant at school. Uh, And I don't think my kids have had the chance to be in, you know, the Christmas nativity pageant like I got to be with political correctness and all that sort of thing. They did have it at the preschool they went to many years ago and my kids for some reason were always Mary or Joseph, depending on their gender, uh, in the Christmas nativity thing and I worked out that's because it's the minister's kid and you can't offend the minister's kid by making his kid Mary or Joseph in the, in the Christmas story. But growing up, I don't know, did you have a favourite? Did you have a favourite you wanted to be in the nativity story most Many people want to be little angels or, you know, that sort of thing. I always wanted to be the little drummer boy because I just love the idea of rump-a-pum-pum, you know. The, um, and someone actually sent me during the week David Bowie doing a version of the little drummer boy. So there you go. Uh, but then I, when I read the Bible, when I got a bit older, as we've read tonight, I realised there was no little drummer boy. Do you know how disappointing that is to... Troy was doing it first tonight, but it was all right. The little drummer boy. Uh, I was discovered there was no one playing rump-a-pum-pum to Jesus in the manger. So there you go. So then I think my favourite characters became the three kings. Because when you've got a choice of being a shepherd and dressing in a brown striped terry toweling dressing gown, growing up in Brisbane in, on Christmas time, or dressing up as a king, you go with the king any time. But again, when I actually read the Bible, I discovered there were no kings Instead, there were these strange magi that we just read about, these wise men from the East. And that's the thing with the Christmas story is over the years, it's sort of taken on a life of its own. It's had 2,000 years to do it. Uh, And so lots of things are sort of built up all around the Christmas story, traditions that people have added and created around it, which is all right, I think. Uh, But I think for many people, it means we treat it like a myth or like a parable, like a story with a lesson. And so this morning I read the Christmas editorial in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald. And and as I was reading, it had nothing to do with Christmas. Then right at the end it said, like the lesson we learn from the Christmas story to be good to one another or something like that. And you see, if if that's what it is, if it's a myth designed to teach us timeless truths then you can add whatever other elements to it you want, you know, and the story will still be there. But Matthew and Luke, who we've been reading tonight, Matthew and Luke, when they wrote the Christmas stories at the start of their Gospels, they didn't think they were writing a story with a moral. They thought they were writing history. They were eyewitnesses of many of the events they described and of the events they weren't eyewitnesses of, they made a point of saying, we went and found eyewitnesses and spoke to them about it. 
so that we could tell you exactly what happened in the life of Jesus. For them, this wasn't a fable to teach children a Christian story, if you like. At Christmas, remember to care for strangers. At Christmas, care more for other people or whatever it is. For them, this was the moment in history where God had broken in. That's what they were writing about. They said, this is the moment in history where God has broken into the world to reveal himself to humanity and to save humanity. And so each event they record is there to show us actually what happened. You see, what it is, is this is the most amazing moment of history. And we don't want you to miss a bit. And so tonight I want us to look at just this one little part of the story, these intriguing wise men or magi from the east. If you take out your little sheet of paper, you'll be able to follow along. And the first thing to notice is that most of our nativity scenes are actually wrong. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and there was no room in the inn and all that, like you read in Luke's gospel. Uh, He was laid in a manger, that's all, you know, all of that sort of thing. But the wise men weren't there gathered around with the shepherds at the same time. They actually came later. It was probably about six months later down the track. And you would have noticed as it was read for us that they were actually in a house by this time. So by this stage, Mary and Joseph are still in Bethlehem, but they're in a house and Jesus would have not been in a manger, I presume, unless he got attached to it in the early days. I don't know. But unbeknownst to Mary and Joseph, up in Jerusalem, it's about five kilometres away from Bethlehem, these wise men from the east stroll into town. So who were they? We actually know next to nothing about them. We don't even know how many of them there were. The tradition says there were three because they had three gifts. And it seems like people couldn't handle the fact that one might have had two gifts or or one might have come without a gift. So they've said there's three wise men. We don't know. Might have been two, might have been four. All we're told is they were magi which means they were probably astrologers, people who looked at the stars to see what was happening, or sages from Babylon. They were pagans. They didn't worship the Jewish God. They didn't worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. But they knew somehow, probably from Jews living in Babylon, they knew about the God of Israel. And when a new star appeared in the eastern sky, they said that somehow, I don't know how, we don't, we're not told how they worked it out, but they said this new star is connected to the birth of the Jewish king, the promised king, the Messiah. And so what did they do? They went to Jerusalem because that's where a Jewish king would be born because kings are born in capital cities. The, the king of England, the next king of England, would have been born in London because that's the capital of England. And so they went to Jerusalem and they went to the palace. They thought that is where a king would be born. And when they got there, they went around the city saying, where is this new king of the Jews? They sort of thought, where's all the the carry-on? Why is no one celebrating? What's going on about this? And I imagine they were a bit confused. Why is no one talking about this new king? And you can imagine they caused quite a bit of a commotion in Jerusalem at that time because the thing is there was already a king in the palace in Jerusalem. King Herod was the king of the Jews. That's what he called himself. That was his title. Now you have to understand just how horrible Herod was. He was sort of set up as a puppet king by the Romans 
And he wasn't actually really Jewish. He was half Jewish. And so they didn't really think he was their king. They thought he was a pretender. And he wasn't descended from King David or anything like that. So the Jews hated Herod. And Herod did a pretty good job of hating everyone else. He was paranoid. By this point in history, he already had killed two of his sons. Because he thought, well, who's the most likely person to try and kill me? It'll be my sons. So they can become the king. So he's killed them, got them out of the way. That's the sort of king King Herod was. So when he heard people are saying, a new king has been born, what do you think Herod thought about that? Look at verse 3. He was deeply disturbed. And you can imagine that meant everyone else in Jerusalem was deeply disturbed as well. If he's happy to kill his own sons to remain king, well, what's he going to do now that there's a pretender on the scene? Now, Herod knew, he knew enough of the Bible to know that there should be a king coming. He knew that the Jews were waiting for a saviour king who all the prophets of the Old Testament had promised would come one day. That's why we started the service reading from Isaiah chapter 9. That was one of those prophecies about this wonderful counsellor, this mighty prince of peace who would come and be the saviour king of God's people. And so Herod calls in his religious experts and said, well, if the king has come, where would he have been born? And they say, well, that's easy. The prophet Micah tells us it'll be in Bethlehem five kilometres down the road. Now Herod has only got one thing on his mind, kill off any rival. So he tries to enlist the Magi sort of unknowingly to do his dirty work for him. And he calls them in and he says, can you go to Bethlehem and find the baby boy for me? He says, I want to worship him too. Come and get me. I, I want to come down there. I want to go to Bethlehem with you. Of course, in reality, Herod wanted to find out where he was so he could kill him. Anyone who claims to be a king needs to be dealt with, even a little baby in Bethlehem. It's interesting though, Herod was just the first of many to try to have Jesus killed. When you read the stories of Jesus' life, it starts here when Jesus was a couple of months old, but basically for the rest of his life, people were trying to kill Jesus. Which is interesting, given he was the man who preached about peace and love your neighbour and all those sorts of things. And eventually they succeeded, didn't they? Eventually, Herod and his followers got together with the people they hated most, the religious leaders, with the people they hated most, the Romans, and they said, but we all hate Jesus more. And so we're going to get together. And they killed him. And for 2,000 years since, Jesus has created these strong negative reactions in people. Why is that, do you think? Why does Jesus, from the very beginning, from Herod on, why did he create these strong negative reactions? It's because the claims about Jesus impact us. The claims Jesus makes impact what we think about ourselves. And so if you don't agree with his claims, they become offensive. You see, Jesus' claims were absolutely outlandish. Jesus said, I am God's king. More than that, I am the son of God. And then the message he grew up to preach, the message that he alone could offer salvation from sin, that he alone could offer people eternal life, 
those claims demand a strong reaction from people. And many people didn't like Jesus' claims then, and many people don't like Jesus' claims now. They said, don't you dare tell me, Jesus, that I'm a sinner who needs saving. Don't you dare tell me that it's only through Jesus that I can find God. From the very beginning, Jesus' claims have offended people, especially powerful people and especially religious people. Especially people who think, I'm okay, I'm pretty good with God, I don't need a saviour. But for many other people, Jesus creates a very, very different, strong reaction. And if we get back to the story, we see that reaction in the Magi. They didn't know that Herod really wanted to kill Jesus. It was only that later that God warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they set off in good faith to find the baby king. And this time, the star actually moved in the sky. At first, they'd seen the star in the east, and that meant they went to Jerusalem. But this time it says the star actually moved and showed them the way to Bethlehem. And they went, and they found this little baby. And as they entered the house, they did something astonishing. Look at verse 11. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. That is an astonishing thing for three grown men to do, isn't it? This little baby boy, they worshipped him. We, we don't get shocked by that because we know the whole story. We've known the Christmas story for however many years you've been alive. We know Jesus is the Son of God. But just think about this. This little boy in a house in Bethlehem, they walk in and they drop to their knees and they worship him. This little baby in the arms of his young mother, Mary was probably only about 14 at this point, they recognise this baby is more even than a king. Because they didn't bow down and worship the king in Jerusalem. This baby is more than a king. This is the son of God come to earth. Like the angel had told Joseph, this is Emmanuel, God with us. And then it says, if you look there, then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. Everyone knows what gold is, but frankincense was a, a gum that smelt lovely, a perfume sort of gum that came from rare trees and was incredibly precious. And, and myrrh was a perfume you could only get from trees in Arabia where they came from. And again, it was incredibly precious. You can still get frankincense and myrrh today. I was in Dubai a couple of years ago on the way to Africa and, and I went to the spice markets there and when I told someone there that I was a Christian minister, one of the men, he dragged me to the back room. I thought I was being kidnapped, you know. <laughs> and he said, Mr. Christian, Mr. Christian, here is frankincense and here is myrrh. You want some? He thought, of course I'd want some. I'm a Christian minister. I'd, it's still expensive, so I didn't get any. Uh, <laughs> even the slip and slide was on special at Rebel Sports. <laughs> Over years, people have loved coming up with symbolic meanings for each of these three gifts. And people point out that myrrh is something that you would put on a dead body. And maybe it's pointing forward to what was going to be Jesus' fate in his death. But I don't think it's there to see symbolic meanings, to find strange answers. The meaning is these are gifts of incredible preciousness. This was not a box of Cadbury chocolates. This was not a soft toy. 
that you would take to the hospital to give the new baby. These are gifts that no carpenter's son would ever receive or ever see in their whole life. But for God's son come to earth, they are the most appropriate gifts you could give. See, by coming and worshipping him, literally by dropping to their knees in front of him and by giving him him these three gifts, the Magi were recognising this baby is not just a human being. This baby is not even just a king. This baby is divine. This is God with us. And more than that, these men, who up to this point were pagan astrologers. The Bible really doesn't have a lot of time for men of this profession. They give us a wonderful hint of something else at this point. They are the first hint that Jesus was not just the king of the Jews. That's what Herod called himself. But Jesus was bigger than that. They were the first hint that actually Jesus is the Lord of the whole world. He is the Lord of all people and that Jesus offers his hope and his salvation and his gift of eternal life to everyone, to everyone, to anyone, whatever nation they come from, whatever language they speak, whatever religion they were born into, Jesus says, I am the way, the way to know God and the way to find his salvation and forgiveness. Jesus offers hope and salvation to all people from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue if we will just come and worship him, if we will just come and believe in him. I pray you have a wonderful Christmas. I pray that your toys don't have a weight limit tomorrow. (laughs) But more than that, I pray that with these first wise men all those years ago, you will be wise this Christmas. That's my prayer for you. I pray that Jesus might create the same strong response in you that he created in those first wise men all those years ago. I pray that you won't be indifferent to Jesus. Do you notice that in the Christmas story? There's strong reactions either way to Jesus, but there's no one who sits on the fence and says, oh, I think he was just a nice little baby. That's a very modern response. It's not the response of someone who reads the Bible. See, I pray that you might join with the Magi, with me, and with millions of people over the last 2,000 years and today, and join together and worship Jesus as God's King. That's my prayer for you this Christmas. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful joys of Christmas. We thank you for the wonderful message that you have sent your son into the world to be our saviour. And we thank you that he comes to offer salvation, not just to the Jews, but to people from every tribe, every nation and every tongue. And so we pray that this Christmas, even as we enjoy all the good things, the food and presents, the family and friends, that we will most of all remember the wonderful news of Christmas and bow down and worship Jesus with these wise men. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.